It's not you, it's me. We want to end this series in talking about integration. Can you say the word integration? Integration, the idea is basically this. Living your God-given life involves remaining faithful to your true self. It entails distinguishing your true self from the demands and voices around you and discerning the unique vision, calling, and mission that God the Father has given you. Integration, right? We get the word integrity. Integrity is more than just being honest. It's the state of being whole, entire, undiminished. Uh, In short, basically, you could say this. Integration is like what's on the inside matches what's on the outside. Anyone ever sense a bit of a disconnect between their inner life and what's going on on the outside? Anybody? Right? I so desperately have these desires internally, but they don't tend to get expressed out here. Or I put up a certain kind of front and my inner world is absolutely a wreck, right? It cuts both ways. One of the reasons this is important to talk about, and um, I came across this quote from Rumi. He says this, if you are here unfaithfully with us, if you're here unfaithfully with us, you're causing terrible damage. If you're here, like he's talking about humanity, if you're here unfaithfully with us, you're causing so much damage. Like if you're not you, if you're not integrated, like you're, you're, you may not even be aware of the damage that you're causing your relationships, that you're causing the world around you. When what's on the inside matches what's on the outside. So I want to throw a scale up here. We're going to talk about Jesus. If Jesus was truly, like, was 100% his true self, or he was, we're going to get to this phrase in a moment, self-differentiated, where might you place on the scale of integration? So 0 to 25 is, like, people who can't distinguish fact from feeling, emotionally needy, highly reactive to others. Most of your life is spent trying to win the approval of others. Um, you have a hard time saying, oh, I think and I believe because that leaves too much open, uh, too much open. You have little emotional separation from your family. Maybe you have really dependent marital relationship, like you lean actually too hard on your spouse. You're unable to see where they end and others begin. So that would put you in like the lowest category of differentiation, of, of knowing your true self, of integration, sorry. 25 to 50, if you'd rank yourself in this lane, this would be, you have some ability to distinguish between fact and feeling, but most of yourself is a false self reflected from others. Like, you basically kind of figure out who you are based on how other people see you. Uh, when anxiety is low, you function okay, um, but you often, like, talk uh, about one set of principles and belief and do, a different, uh, do something very different. Your self-esteem soars with compliments, or is crushed by criticism. You become incredibly anxious, like highly reactive, like freaking out when a relationship uh, falls apart uh, or, you become un- or something becomes unbalanced in your life. You often make poor decisions due to your inability to think clearly under stress and you seek power, honor, knowledge, and love from others to close your false self. So you chase that stuff to make yourself feel better. Anybody find themselves in the 25 to 50 mark? According to this one study, this is basically where most people live, is between here and this next block, and we're nowhere near 100 yet. 
50 to 75. This is really encouraging, by the way, I'm sure. Welcome to church. 50 to 75, you're aware of the thinking and feeling functions that work as a team. You have a reasonable level of like knowing your true self. You can follow life goals that are determined from within. You can state beliefs calmly without putting others well. You can function um, decently well alone. You're able to cope with crisis without falling apart. Uh, And you're able to stay in relational connection with others without insisting that they see the world the same way you do, which we're going to get to in a moment. And then lastly, very few people, according to Pisces Zero, in the 75 to 100 are in this last lane. Uh, you're principle-oriented and goal-oriented. You're able to leave family of origin and become an interconnect, interdirected, separate adult. You're sure of your beliefs, but you're not dogmatic or closed off. You can hear and evaluate beliefs of others, discarding old beliefs in favor of new ones. You can listen without reacting. You can respect others without having to change them. Anyone would like that gift? You can respect others without feeling like you need to change them. Aware of dependence on others and responsibility for others. So I'm aware of that. Um, I'm able to maintain a non-anxious presence in stress and pressure. I'm able to maintain a non-anxious presence. When the kids are freaking out, when my spouse says something I don't really like, when my friends like, feel like aren't following up the way they should, when there's disconnect in our home church, when that employee or that boss does not give you the feedback that you need. You are able to differentiate. You're able to learn from, right? Because the unhealthy side of what we're going to get into is basically you just shut off from other people. So to see an example of healthy integration, I figured we should go with the most like perfect person, right? Let's aim high. Great. Jesus. (laughs) A couple observations about Jesus's life as we dive into the text. It seemed that everyone placed expectation on him about who he was and what he should do. In other words, they placed a false self on him. Everyone in this room has experienced this in some way. People have expectations of you, who you're supposed to be. And Jesus, because he kind of comes out of the gate, at least as an adult in his public ministry, he starts talking about who he is, the Messiah, the Son of God, like the new Moses, the new Adam, like there's all this language swirling around him. And because people have an idea of what the Messiah is supposed to be, of who Jesus is, and then of where he's come from, there's all sorts of incidences where you see other people putting on him this idea of who he's supposed to be. Jesus' job, right, being fully human and fully divine, knowing who he truly was and living out of that, disappoints a lot of people. Jesus disappoints A lot of people. Does that like fill anybody with a little bit of hope right now? I mean, he disappoints them for the right reasons, but he disappoints a lot of people. This has been this week in preparing this message. For some reason, this really simple observation has produced so much fruit in my heart. Because it's just realizing the Son of God who has this very clear sense of who he is and the mission in front of him, begins to let people down. That being true to yourself doesn't equal everybody likes you. That being true to yourself doesn't equal conflict-free zone. That doing the right thing doesn't equal mass praise from the people around you. Jesus disappoints. 
Now remember, Jesus' ministry begins at his baptism where the spirit descends and he hears the words, this is my son whom I'm well pleased. Before he's done anything, before he's encountered any pressure that we know of, before he's begun his public ministry, right? We've talked about this before. That sort of phrase from God, I expect at the end of my life, Andrew, well done, good and faithful servant, hopefully. Or like, decent job, okay servant, you're lucky, Grace, come on in, right? <laughs> That's honestly what I feel like God's gonna say to me. <laughs> at the beginning of his ministry, He hears the words, Eugene Peterson transliterates this as, I'm proud of you. You hadn't done anything yet. I love you. I see you. This is my son whom I'm well pleased. If anyone uh, has had a child here, a nephew or niece, and you've looked upon them, and all of a sudden you're overcome with so much love and appreciation for this little blob that can't do anything but eat and fill a diaper. Anyone ever had that moment where it's not just they're cute, you're like, oh my gosh, I, I am so, I love and I'm so proud of and like, you just, you experience this. I think, I think this is a taste of what Jesus experiences from the Father. This is what begins his ministry. So he is, he knows who he is and whose he is. And all that comes with being loved by the God of the universe becomes his governor, or his rudder, becomes his center. And then Jesus, as he begins to step out into his vocation, into his calling, begins to disappoint his family. He left his family of origin. They call him out of his mind at one point. His hometown, right? We read in Luke 4, like he opens the scroll of Isaiah, saying, this is who I am. He compares, like, his town Nazareth to a really like broken, awful story in the Old Testament. And then he has a bunch of people who are ready to throw him off a cliff in announcing who he is and being clear about what's supposed to happen. I've come to bring good news to the poor. You'd think this would be like an easy message right out of the gate. And for a number of factors, he is pushed to the edge of a cliff. And we're still not quite sure how, those of you familiar with that story, how he gets out of that situation. Like, he just, like, levitates up and gets out. I don't know how, how that happens. Three, his closest friends. They're projecting what the Messiah is supposed to look like on him. You are going to make Israel great again. That's not a political jab. That's literally probably the best way culturally I can help explain to you what they wanted from Jesus. Put Israel back together and do it through force. Gather the people up and push Rome back. Most of his disciples, that was the tip they were on. And most of the religious system was either absolutely in bed with the Roman oppressor or wanted to push back against the Roman oppressor. His closest friends, who he'd talk with, who he'd hang out with, have a very different image of what he is supposed to do and put this on him. And they fail him, they don't get it, they don't hear him. One of his disciples betrays him and Jesus still moves towards them and doesn't hold it against them. And then the religious community, his tribe, he's a rabbi. They hated the disruption that he brought to the establishment. 
He's called like a, like a, like a basically a, that his power must be demonic. Like his tribe and his fellow leaders, who you think would be like pals and colleagues, his colleagues turn on him. He was able, though, in all of this to maintain a non-anxious presence in the midst of all of that stress. He remained who he was as he loved and as he served and as he sacrificed without holding anything against, at least that we know of, against anyone. He actually moves towards people in the ultimate way, right? Jesus' story towards the end, the culmination of his story, he actually dies on the cross for all the people who he's disappointed and who have pushed back and who have put this false self and these faulty expectations on. Pete Scazzaro says this in Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. He says, Jesus was not selfless. He did not live as if only other people counted. He knew his value and his worth. He had friends. He asked people to help him. And at the same time, Jesus was not selfish. He did not live as if nobody else counted. He gave his life out of love for others from a place of loving union with his father, Jesus had a mature, healthy, true self. I love this distinction between selfless and selfish. Think for a moment. This, I doubt this is everybody, but I'm, I'm going to guess it's a good chunk of people. This, this, for me, has been one of the biggest issues. And we're going to dive into this in a second. But how, how, when I think about loving and engaging friendships, relationships, employees, friends... Do I not abandon who I am and enmesh myself in that other person while also not being selfish? In other words, these are two sides of the same coin. I can move toward people and lose myself. Anyone feel like they struggle with that? Like I, I want to serve people and I want to be, be good and I want to be friendly and I want to be kind. And actually in there, I accidentally indirectly produce a ton of anxiety and stress in my own heart because I'm losing part of myself and my will and my desires, whether they're good or bad. I put a high value in my marriage and my friendships on empathy. And empathy is a good thing, right? But there's a dark side to empathy, I found. The dark side to empathy is when you begin to, oh, I just, I feel what you feel. I have a friend who jokes, I have like a certain voice that kicks in and it just makes the person like cry apparently pretty quickly. And the voice is just like, yeah, oh, I get that. Like I get a little growly, I get a little whispery. Anyone else have that voice? It's like the listening voice. For some reason, mine has like a little like magic dust I guess sprinkled on it where it's like, I will make you cry. We will do this together. We will cry together, right? And so, but I've, I found what can happen is, is, um, to use like sort of a silly image, but I just, it's almost like part of my spirit, instead of me coming alongside and joining hands with and walking through the fire with, it's almost like a little part of me, like imagine a little ghost image just sort of like lays onto the other person. Like it escapes and I begin to say things or express things actually I don't even think or believe. I begin to lose myself. It's sort of hard to talk about, but anyone kind of know what I'm, what I'm getting at? Like the ways in which Jesus was not selfless. He didn't lose himself. He was clear on who he was and his mission and his call, but he was not selfish. 
Because oftentimes the way we react, well, I'm not going to lose myself. I'm going to stay to my true self. And then we don't move toward people. And it's a way actually we box people out. We'll get into this more in a little bit. He knew who he was. He knew what he was here to do all the way down. All the way down. He wrestled with God all of his life. Even at the very end of his life, right? Like, like sweating blood in the garden. He is wrestling with his call. So it's not like you arrive at your true self once at age like 22 and then you're good to go. We literally see like the son of God wrestling with his vocation and wrestling with his identity all the way through his life. Who am I? What am I called to do? How does this make sense as he's struggling with the father and working this out all the way through? And then he ends up dying for the people who hated who he was. I don't know about you, but I want to live that way. I want to live that way with every day and every moment become more dialed into who God made me to be, who I am in Christ, which we're going to talk about in a second as well. But be able then to move toward people with a kind of freedom of like, yeah, you may reject this, man, but I love you. It's like the ability to, um, excuse my French, be able, be able, the ability to, to piss somebody off twice is the Christian gift. Follow me. It's like something about my very nature of like how I'm acting or how I'm loving you is bothering you because, you know, the gospel can be a bit offensive sometimes when you're loving volitionally somebody. But, right? So that's the first one. But then you get to piss them off again because when they try to walk away or hit you or push you back or want to put up a wall, you just come around again. You're like, well, I love you no matter what. You know what I'm saying? No? Okay. I'm going to write a book. I'm going to write a book. The double piss up. Never mind. So let's look at what integration is not. If Jesus gives us a great little image of what integration is, what is, what is integration when it goes bad? Turn with me, if you would, to Galatians 2. Andrew, feed us. I will be in your debt forever if you could grab me a cup of coffee. Thank you, friend. Galatians 2, 11 to 14. When Peter came to Antioch, this will also be on the screen. Uh, some translations say Cephas, same person, came to Antioch. So real quick, uh, Jews and Gentiles have a very racist history. And Peter is one of the people that God used to tear down the wall between these two groups. He has a vision. He believes that they are one now. There's all, this, all these reasons that there's separation um, and so he goes to visit a church community, and he sees they're eating together. And then as we're going to see in a minute, a group of Jewish Christians arrives, and they convict Peter to actually withdraw from this Gentile group. So he's a Jew, has had a... Thanks, Tony. Andrew didn't want to do it. Yeah. No, forget it. He's dead. He's dead to me. Thank you. Thank you, Tony. Peter has had this conviction. He gets up at the Jerusalem council and talks about how the Jew and the Gentile, there's been all this division, they should be one. He has this dream from the spirit. He's got this calling on his life and he shows up at this church and then he finds himself essentially like wooed away from his vision and his call by a group of Jewish Christians. I, Paul, opposed Peter to his face. So Paul shows up and sees this scene because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. 
But when they arrived, he, meaning Peter, Paul's critiquing Peter, began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. He belonged to this new group. Circumcision group is code for like this particular Jewish group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy. So he uses the term hypocrisy. I know what God's infused in you, told you. I was there when you got up and lectured all of us about how these two groups, we need to like kill this racism in our midst. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. Now, if you know the Bible at all, I know some of you are brand new to the scriptures, but Barnabas, he's like the nicest dude. Like Barnabas is like this sweet guy. Barnabas is like Mr. Gentle. Like think of that person in your life who like could never do anything wrong. That's Barnabas as far as we know. Like, I mean, I mean Peter's definitely going to hell. He's leading Barnabas to sin. <laughs> Kidding. I saw that they were not acting. Here's the line. Paul says, I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. Now this term separate, they, he began, they began to separate is in the imperfect tense. It's written to apply that there was like a gradual moving back. Gradually, Peter becomes more and more, I don't know if he's internally embodying racism or he's changing his opinion, but he is gradually moving away from his call. He is being, I mean, this is like almost good old-fashioned. This could preach in a youth group for like peer pressure. Right? He finds himself being drawn slowly back. That's the idea in the text. This is gradual. He began to start acting racist again. And before you know it, Peter is not eating with the Gentiles. And Paul calls him out and says, you're not acting in line with the truth. Peter's not living in line with what he knows to be true. He is disintegrated. They disintegrated. This is a, a little snapshot of what the opposite of what we just talked about with Jesus of what disintegration looks like. He's not living on the outside. What's on the outside is not in line with what's on the inside. This is often how we live. Our inside just doesn't match up. Who we truly are doesn't line up with how we actually look. And the reason for this and why I highlight that word separate and the growing like gradual move away from the other is I think the reason for why we become disintegrated has so much to do with people-pleasing or in this case, culture-pleasing. Culture-pleasing. Any millennials in the room? Any millennials in the room? Let me see three-fourths of our church hands go up. <laughs> You're all basically millennials. Like, you're a millennial. You're supposed to act a certain way when you live in a city like Providence and you're a millennial. Any women in the room? There's a way, right? Like, there's a way I'm supposed to act in Providence as a Providence woman to a degree. I'm a mom. I read these blogs. I align with that particular group. I'm a sexual minority. This is how sexual minorities act in our city. Now, there's not one stripe, but the idea is that there's all of these, this like cultural pressure, soft space that shape us into becoming like how we feel we are supposed to be in the world. And as followers of Jesus, we can forget who we are in Christ. Or maybe for some of you, you've never even wrestled with who you are in Christ. And we get swept up into thinking or behaving how we feel others tell us we're supposed to behave. 
We forget our convictions. And again, this, this word separateness, it doesn't happen overnight. This happens in spaces of, if you're taking notes, write this word down, soft influence. This happens in places of soft influence. There is the soft power of the Providence coffee shop. Just being in the, being in the room. There is the soft power of what Mark Sayers calls progressive colonization or Western supremacy. This idea that if you don't align with the Enlightenment and don't align with progressive values that are pretty much generally white and European, you must not be really progressive and in line and dialed in with what it means to be a person in a post-Christian city. It's a different sermon. There's, there's something that you're supposed to believe. There's the soft power of social media. It's actually not even soft anymore, right? Because the algorithms are basically building things that you look at that only reinforce what you want to look at. If you want to be mad all the time and you keep clicking on those things, if you're wondering why that person keeps popping up in your feed, it's not their fault. It's yours. You're clicking on it. And then they're just reinforcing and creating a system that you get only what you want. Follow me? This is, I mean, that's actually not even that soft, right? There's the soft space of virtue signaling. I'm going to make sure that I say the right thing out here, even though internally I feel something different. Before you know it, you start acting and believing like every other East Coast, I don't know, young parent, East Coast millennial, East Coast progressive, East Coast conservative, if that's a thing. It was a joke. It's a joke. Never mind. <laughs> Political jokes don't work, Andrew. How do you live out your true self? How do you live out your true self and not the story of someone else or some group think that tells you how you should believe? How do you live out your true self? How do you become integrated when we feel that space? I mentioned all those soft spaces, right? Because we have a propensity to just get swept up. I, I, I didn't get a chance to put this up on the screen because it actually never existed. I was just going to make something up. I had the flu a couple weeks ago. And I was in bed and, and watched, just looked at way too much social media. Now, the flu hit right before the Super Bowl. And so I watched the Super Bowl with like one eye open, could barely make sense of it. Saw the Super Bowl, saw the game, great game. I mean, Pats weren't in it, so I didn't care that much. But saw the halftime show, thought, oh, okay, you know, it's the halftime show. It tends to be sort of like that in a lot of ways. Oh, that was kind of clever. Oh, that was kind of interesting. Oh, that was, you know, a bit, bit much. My opinion on all sorts of things, whatever. So we, I all of a sudden turned to social media over the next 24 hours. Does anyone know where I'm going with this story? Over the next 24 hours, the amount of hot takes that took place were unbelievable. Right? You, you're basically racist on the one side if you didn't think that was like the most perfect, amazing performance ever. You don't care about really like empowering women because you think somehow empowering women means you should be like a pole dancer. Back and forth. Did anyone follow this? If you have no idea what I'm talking about, would you raise your hand? Because I would like to know who you are. Amazing. Jenna Klaus, really? I love that. You're just on your own. You're on your own tip. You're totally integrated. You're somewhere else. <laughs> This was like everywhere. Everybody had an opinion about what was going on. And all I wanted to post was this. Watch me do two things at once. That's what I wanted to post. 
Watch me do two things at once. Affirm two 50-year-old Latino women crushing it at their craft. Absolutely killing it. Unbelievably talented. What a great thing to see this culture like elevated in one of the largest pilots ever. Watch me celebrate that. Then go, watch me do two things at once. Come over here and go, yeah, I don't think that was super kid appropriate. Super Bowl football is like kids. So like if I had like, I don't know, a nine-year-old daughter or son, I wouldn't be a big fan of the zoomed-in crotch shots that kept happening. Watch me do two things at once. I thought the political critique and what's happening with the cages and the kids, all that was so clever and that was so interesting. There's a lot going on there. Watch me do two things at once. I also can critique. You follow me? I'm not saying it was the right post. I didn't even end up posting it at all for a number of reasons. Right? I never put that. I was not, didn't want to get lambasted. My point is, is that was an example of me trying to be able to differentiate. Everybody in my world wanted me to go in one of two directions. Everyone in my world wanted me to say it's obviously all this or it's obviously all that. Everybody in my world wanted that. Anyway, like this is what was going on. And for me, it was, well, I'm a follower of Jesus, so there's all sorts of things I can affirm. And actually, no one's asking for a white gentleman's hot take on this anyway. So I'm going to keep my mouth shut. Different sermon. How do you live out your true self, and how do you then become integrated? That's a silly little story of, like, watching my inner world deal with how do I be faithful to who I am and what I'm called to be, especially as a follower of Jesus. So first, got to move along a little bit here. One, you got to know your identity, and the two living integrated is you got to know your calling. And if you're a college student tonight, we're going to talk about calling and purpose tonight in depth at College Hill Night. Really excited about that little plug. First, knowing your identity, knowing who you are in Christ. What you believe about yourself is the foundation of your life. An emotionally healthy life and thus emotionally healthy relationships begin with what you believe about yourself. We have to be people who tell each other accurate stories about who we are. Every single um, story we tell about who, are, who we are is unreliable in some way. Right? We tell stories about when we're in a certain situation, we tell stories about like what's really happening here. And we have a point of view. And so as we're rehearsing that narrative, we, we recognize that there's an unreliability to that. Uh, there's a, a really uh, kind of well-known TED talk that talks about you can change your life by changing your story. And the therapist talks about themselves, and I love this language. I've used this for myself. It's like she talks about how she's basically an editor. I help edit people's stories. They come with me with a story saying, I am trapped by this circumstance. I'm trapped by this situation. I'm trapped by these kids. I'm trapped by this spouse. I'm, I don't know how to move forward with this. And so she's getting this sort of like, dear therapist, here's what's wrong. And she realizes part of her job is to help that person identify the story they're telling and then edit it so that they can actually move into greater health. And I just thought about this as a follower of Jesus. We actually are saying there's a larger story that is outside our own point of view about who we are and what we're here to do. And it's when we lose track of that story, right? If I'm to take this, um, this, this well-known therapist-like point of view, like when we actually adopt a truer story about who we are, that is the thing that allows us to actually change our life. We walk around with stories 
um, in our lives and trying to figure out how to make sense of them, why we treat people the way we do, why others treat people. We have a, a narrative about like why that happens. Well, that's just who I am. Well, I'm that person who, yeah, always gets into that. I'm that person who like can't like stop putting his foot in his mouth or I'm that person who like, yep, there's just no way of changing that or I'm just really stuck. And then finding ourselves, sort of like that old comic where you're like, um, the person standing, right, their circumstances like at a jail cell. And they're just like, I'm stuck. I'm not free. I'm stuck. I'm not free. And they don't realize there are no bars on their left and on their right and behind them. We get stuck in a story and we don't actually begin to trust the larger story. I'm never going to get better at this. Well, if you believe the God of the universe is on your side, if you believe that in, confu- in community there is power and redemption and freedom... When we're stuck and I'm never going to be free of like my anxiety and my ache and seeing the world this way. If you trust that the God of the universe actually loves you at the depth of your being, it will begin to open up and transform. So like you'll, you'll be able to see that you can let go of the bars and move left or right. If we can change our stories, this therapist says, we can change our lives. And I agree. I would simply amend this as followers of Jesus so we can align our story to who we are, loved at the depth of our being, free from the fear of death. You may not feel free of the fear of death, but that you have complete access to that story if you were to truly trust it with all of your being. And it will unleash a sort of freedom in your life. I've shared this many times over the years, but the two biggest things that pop up on psychologists and therapists' dashboards that they're looking for Two of the reasons that they are, I should say, two of the reasons that they think most people are jacked up the way that they are is a low-grade human generative death anxiety. Everybody knows they're going to die someday. They don't know how to deal with it, so they shove it way down, and then it manifests itself in eight different ways. And the other one is identity. Their identity is constantly shifting and moving around. And so because people have movable dynamics that fade away around identity. These are the two basic things. I think it's so fascinating if there's truth to that. The Christian story, our identity, is actually rooted in addressing those two things. Death has lost its sting. You're going to live forever with the God of the universe, and you are loved at the depth of your being, and like no matter what. Like, that's fascinating. Fascinating. Throughout the scriptures, we are told we are in Christ, union with Jesus. We are loved and known and bonded in some way with him. And so when we talk about identity, we have to think about the stories that we're telling ourselves and where are the stories that we're telling ourselves that aren't helpful? Who are the supporting actors in our story that are telling us, that are, um, uh, the the phrase I think is uh, called idiot wisdom. Idiot wisdom would say, um, hey, you know what, man, I'm really sorry you got, like, into a fight at that bar again, man. You know, I'm like, I'm just, I'm so sorry for you, that stinks. And you have all these facts that actually that person gets into a fight at the bar every single weekend. And so as they're complaining to you that, like, yeah, man, just another situation in the world's against me, right? If you're a good friend, if you're not using idiot wisdom and helpful wisdom, you're going to try to identify the fact that you've gotten kicked out of almost every bar in Providence probably means there's not a problem with the bars in Providence. It's probably you. Idiot wisdom would just go, who are the supporting actors who are trying to reinforce bad visions of your story? Yeah, well, the world's just against me. Yeah, well, this is just how I am. Yeah, well, I can't stop doing this. Anybody who's been in a cycle of, like, Addiction knows this so well. 
And you got to begin to tell yourself another story about who you are, even when you fail and slip and fall short. And who are the supporting actors that are propping up the bad stories that you're telling about yourself? We tend to find our identity in one of three places. What we do, what we have, what we desire. And I actually, out of fourth, like, um, oh, sorry, what, what I do, what I have, what I desire, and what people say about me. So we know this, right? I get my identity from my career or my craft. This is how I find weeding, meaning if I do it well, this will begin to help like reinforce like all of these things. I have people like praising me for who I am. What we have, money, possessions, a bunch of things that are given to us that are outside of our, these are all outside of our control. Some of us, what we have is like really good looks. I always get really fearful with certain folks where I can tell so much of who they are just rooted around like the way that they post or how good they're looking or Like the gym can become, like these good things can become so jacked up, right? I'm creative, I'm charismatic, or you're charming. Like our identity starts to become, well, that's who I am is what we have. Or it's negative. I grew up without a father. I grew up without a father and like I had this difficulty or I had this disability. And so like that's what you have and that actually negatively shapes your identity. Well, I'm just that guy. You don't know what it's like. And it begins to play into a vision and a story that is actually super unhealthy. Stuff that's outside of your control gets pushed down into who you are. You can see why this would be a problem, right? Lastly, the way our identity gets shaped is what we desire. How I want to express myself like becomes what's most important. No boxes for me. I am who I am. We often make our identity out like things like our sexuality like becomes a big thing. That becomes our identity. The problem with all of these is you're forming your identity around moving parts. You can lose your job, creativity stops, right? If when you fail or you stop doing it, all of a sudden you lose yourself. Like, I don't even know who I am anymore because I'm not doing that thing. That's a marker that your identity was way too wrapped up in that. We're bundles of all sorts of conflict, conflicted desires, and so when, when, we're, when our identity is rooted in desire, we start to realize how our desires conflict. My favorite example is like, I want so badly to have a six pack. I, I just want it back because I had it for so many years and then I got old. So I want that more than I want most things and yet every day I just want to need donut. Like, so I have conflicting desires. I want to please and serve God but I also want to do what I want to do. And anyway, this is where we go searching for identity and we don't tell ourselves the truest story, which some of you I know don't believe, but the truest story about who you are, made in the image of God, deeply loved, known, worthy of the God of the universe dying for you. This is who you are in Christ. David Brenner says this, the true self is who in reality you are and who you are becoming. It is not something you need to construct through a process of self-improvement or deconstruct by means of psychological analysis. It is not an object to be grasped, nor is it an archetype to be actualized. It's not even some inner hidden part of you. Rather, it is your total self as you were created by God and as you being redeemed in Christ. It is the image of God that you are, the unique face of God that has been set aside from eternity for you. You are my daughter, my son, 
who I am well pleased. We are brought into union with God, not by anything that you have done. You don't need to earn it by what you do or to try to grasp it by what you have. This is the story that we believe. Or to find it by what you desire. Or to listen to outside voices by living into other people's expectations of you. Can I read those again? Like We are brought into union with God not because of anything you've done. Or to try to grasp it by what you have. Or to try to find it by what you desire. Or try to listen to outside voices by living into other people's expectations for you. It's about what God has done for you and what God says about you. Integration starts with knowing your identity. And the second part is simply this, is to know your calling. Your call to be human. I know I'm made in the image of God and I know I'm fragile. I know I'm made in the image of God and I've come from dust and will return to dust. I have unlimited dignity and worth, and I have a fragility on this side of heaven. I know that there's a call to be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus, to embody an alternative way to be in the world. And then I have a call to my own uniqueness, like how am I called? What is the intersection of my calling and the world's greatest pain? And so all of this leads us then to, you might be wondering, okay, so how again does this relate to relationships? This leads us, when we have a strong sense, those of us here who either have wrestled, want to wrestle, needed to hear again, here's who you are in Christ, and those simple, like, Jesus loves me, this I know, has way more power than I guarantee you give it credit for to shape your relationships. What this moves us then to, back to talking about integration, is this word differentiation. Can you say differentiation? Karen Bowen say this, It's the person's capacity to define his or her own life's goals and values apart from the pressure of those around them. A person's capacity to define who they are and their values apart from the people around them. To hold on to who you are and let go of who you are not. You can be who you are in Christ and still move toward people. You don't have to agree with everyone and you don't need everyone to agree with you. You can remain in community where people don't agree with each other and you don't have to reject them. What a novel idea in 2020. Some of you are, are I mean, you, all of us say that we want that, but I wanna be really clear. That is probably one of the things that is missing the most in every area of our world right now. To remain in community where you don't agree and you don't have to reject them. You don't have to amesh yourself, move to Providence and go, how did I become this, like, I look like every other Providence millennial right now. How did that happen? I look like every other, like, mom at this age. I look like every other, like, you don't have to lose yourself and you don't also have to, like, stand at a homeschool Amish distance. No, no offense to homeschool. Love homeschool. I don't know where that came from. Love homeschool. The unhealthy side of that, right? You don't have to then pull out completely. You don't have to distance. You can move toward people. You don't need to amesh and you don't need to distance. Where are you on that spectrum? We often don't, we, sorry, we too often want to detach. 
or we too often aren't aware of these soft spaces that are actually changing our view and vision of what it means to be alive, what it means to be human, what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Both of these things, a meshing and detaching, need to be avoided in healthy emotional relationships, emotionally healthy relationships. They need to be avoided. You've got to be able to show up with who you are in Christ and bind yourself to people and maybe not agree and remain who God made you to be. You can say things like, I may not agree with you or you with me, and I remain in relationship. I don't have to detach from you, reject you, avoid you, or criticize you to validate myself. Come on. I don't got to put you down to feel good about me. I don't need to criticize you or feel like I need to correct you because your experience is different. And this is where we begin to learn and actually grow together. To the degree that we have lost our dependencies on this world, whatever world means, father, mother, children, career, success, or rewards, we can form a community of faith in which there is little to defend, but much to share. That's good, right, Brother Henry Now, And we can form a community in which there is little to defend and much to share. And I don't know about you, but I find myself growing in environments where they are sharing and moving toward each other in non-anxious ways. That's when I change my opinion. That's when I smarten up. That's when I realize I've been seeing that myopically. That's when I realize the blindness of my gender and my race. That's where I begin to realize the blindness of how I've been co-opted by certain ideologies and not rooted in the scripture. That's the moment. Not when someone's coming at me like this. Right? Amen? True? So our invitation then is to live with integrity. To confess the gap between who we are in Christ and how you present yourself to the world. Who God says that you are. Living with integrity or living integrated requires listening to God from within yourself and understanding how he has uniquely made you. I think I've shared this before. I know I've shared this before, but I wanted to end with just this image for those that are struggling with like, well, this is who God says I am, but I'm not that. So is this like a power, a positive thinking thing? Like, My girls have been a little rough this week, like with each other, my three-year-old and my six-year-old. There's a lot of conflict. And there's been like some surprising moments of like, why are you listening to your, you've always been such a good listener. So this isn't a perfect analogy, but I found myself sitting down with my oldest a number of times and being like, I don't recognize you totally. I, and I began to recall, this was like on the spot. This was not like some premeditated, brilliant parent moment. Still yet to be seen whether it's brilliant at all. But I just began to talk to her and remind her of all the moments that she's listened so well. Like remind her of the ways that like, Actually, you listen so well. You're always so good at that. You are one so caring. Remember that time you did that thing for Rowan? That's her three-year-old sister who can be a little annoying. Like, remember that time you did that thing for her? Remember that? Remember that? Remember that? Remember that? That's who we are, you know. We're, we're followers of Jesus. This is how we roll. And so I'm trying my best in six-year-old language to be like, you know, God loves us so much. He forgives us 
when we do things wrong, no matter what we do. And he shows us how we can like love and be, you know, I'm using words like happy and just going in like on six-year-old levels, but as best I can without being over preacher dad. And I'm just trying to help her see like, this is who you are. This is who you are. You are an incredibly loving, generous person. Now, those are things that you've done, but like, you, you are like, God loves you so much and he forgives you when you do stuff. Do you think you could actually forgive your sister then? Like just trying to talk about the implications and all of this is basically like saying like, I want you to live up like Paul says to what you've already attained. I want you to live into your calling and live into your story. Who you are is loved by God. I didn't say all this to her, but access to peace, no fear. I mean, I wanted to start preaching like this at her. But it was this, like, you are chosen, not forsaken. You are dearly loved, held. Like promises of God's presence with you made in his image. This is who you are. And so for us to be a people who lean into our story and rehearse this about who we are is just like that therapist said in the TED Talk. She's just talking about, I, I, I gotta get the reference for when I preach next time. Like she just keeps going back to this image of like, when you begin to tell yourself, a, Jesus is saying a different story. I'm saying to you as followers of Jesus, the true story. When you begin telling yourself the true story about who you are, then that situation you're in at the bars and you're feeling like, I can't go forward, I can't go forward, I'm in jail, I'm stuck by this, I have no freedom, I cannot change. You remind yourself in that moment, oh, this is who I am, this is who God says I am, this is how loved I am, this is the capacity to be transformed, this is a truer story about who I am and about community and about family and about love and life, and all I gotta do is let go of the bar and go left, because there ain't no bars around you anywhere else. You put this one here, you're holding it up, push it down. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, may we, as we close, be reminded of who we are in you. Would you stand with me and could we sing as we close?